series of nine programmes called Fiction at the Friary and on Campus. Recorded on location in UCC and at the Friary Bar in Cork City. We are now standing outside the Crawford Observatory. The Crawford Observatory is a 19th century observatory located on the campus of UCC. Built in 1878 and completed in 1880, the observatory contains three instruments, a Thomas Grubb equatorial telescope, a transit telescope and a siderostatic telescope. The construction of the observatory and the purchase of telescopes was funded in part by a 1,000 donation from William Crawford of the Beamish and Crawford Brewing Company. At the time of construction, the instrumentation at the Crawford Observatory was at the cutting edge of astronomy, with the Grob Equatorial Telescope winning a gold medal at the Paris show of 1900. However, as light pollution in Cork City increased over the following decades, the observatory gradually fell into disuse and disrepair. This changed in 2006 when the observatory reopened after a renovation project. Renovations included work on the three telescopes and major repairs to the observatory building, including a new openable roof for the equatorial room. The observatory is now used for science outreach activities at UCC and guided tours of the observatory take place six days a week. Well, I'm here in the observatory at UCC with Danielle McLaughlin and um, I'm really pleased to be here with you Danielle because I think that um, your reading today in this particular location is absolutely perfect um, particularly because your collection of short stories is called Dinosaurs from Other Planets. Um, uh, I wonder if you can tell me a little about your links with UCC, which are um, many at this point. Well, I was writer in residence at UCC for the academic year 2018-2019, so that was an absolutely fantastic experience because I absolutely love teaching creative writing. Before that, when I was much, much younger, I studied at UCC as a night student and I did a law degree and an arts degree here as a night student. So back then, most of my college time happened in the evenings. So it was really interesting to see another side of college when most of my attendance at college was during the daytime as it was in the past year. I'm just listening to the wind outside the observatory here and um, thinking about um, your short story collection which is absolutely fantastic and um, we should also mention that this year apart from your writer in residency um, it's been a wonderful year for you um, that first of all this year you um, were awarded a Wyndham Campbell Prize in the US and also won the um, very prestigious uh, Sunday Times Audible Short Story Award. However, you said in an interview um, that you 
had almost been thinking of going back to practice law. Were you really going to do that? I think I had a sort of a psychological wobble. I think one of those moments where you ask yourself, what is it that I'm doing with my life again? It possibly had something to do with the fact that I turned 50 this year. And that coincided with the fact that this year it's 10 years since I last held a practicing certificate as a lawyer. So I suppose in lots of ways it was kind of the year that maybe called me to reflect on what I was doing because law had been my dream from when I was a teenager. I just really, really liked law and I loved the language and I loved the law reports. So it was a big deal for me when I eventually qualified as a solicitor. And I suppose it's, it was a big deal when all of that was quite suddenly gone then because I hadn't planned to stop practicing law. I became ill quite suddenly. And while I was ill, I began writing and I never went back to legal practice. So I think maybe it was thinking back about all the privileges I had that, because it is a privilege, I think, to be able to practice as a lawyer and to have walked away from that. And a lot of people would say, well, that's not um, a very smart thing to do, to leave behind a legal career to write short stories. So I was reflecting on all that. I think I'd also spent the year before working with writers who were also lawyers and that had immersed me back in the world of law again. I put together an anthology of work called Counterparts which was published by the Stinging Fly Press in aid of Peter McFerry Trust and that consists of writing by writers who have a legal background in some way and I think being drawn back into that world and the great stories of the law reports made me remember what I had left behind. So in a way, it was a bit like the universe saying to me, look, okay, maybe here's a little push in a particular direction and a lot of wonderful and unexpected things happened to me in my writing life this year and I'm set firmly back on the writing track again now. For the benefit of emerging writers and people interested in such matters, um, one of the things that I admire hugely about your writing is your use of the specific. And I wonder if you would talk to me just a little bit about that. I like to use specifics in my writing. I think when I'm teaching a workshop is one of the things I regularly say to students that going through a piece of writing and looking for opportunities to move from the general to the specific is one of the best ways to improve a story. Because I think we all live our lives in specifics, none of us live our lives in generalities. So we shouldn't expect our characters to live their lives in generalities either. And I think in fiction and maybe especially in short story writing, it's about finding the right specifics. So we're looking for those one or two words that will bring our character to life for the reader on the page. I think it was the advice given by Flaubert to Maupassant. He said, show me by a single word how one cab horse differs from 50 others before or behind. So it's that idea of getting very specific, but getting specific 
in as small a number of words as possible and doing your best to choose the right word. It's the same as the Chekhov line, isn't it? Uh, don't tell me the, the moon, there is moonlight. Yes, don't tell me the moon is shining. shining. Show, Show me, me the, the glint, glint of light on broken light glass. On broken glass, that's it. Yeah, I love Chekhov's, Chekhov. I love Chekhov's writing advice. He also said, give me an ashtray and tomorrow I'll give you a story or words to that effect. And I think he really has something there because I believe a story lies behind everything. So if we interrogate something long enough, we'll succeed in drawing the story out of it. And um, you also have, as, as uh, many people have pointed out, um, including members of your writing group, you have a fascination with um, such lovely things as dead birds, um, uh, skeletons, and a lot of physical um, uh, debris, let's put it that way. And can you tell me a little bit about the notebook you kept when you were a little girl? Oh, yeah. Well, whenever, whenever an animal or an insect or a bird or any living creature, um, apart from humans, appears one of my stories, are going to have a bad end, it seems. But I can trace that interest in dead things all the way back to my childhood. And when I was a child back in national school, myself and one of my brothers and some other local kids had a club that we called the Be Kind to Animals Club. And this club never did anything for any living animal. So we focused all our attention on dead animals solely and we used to go along the road near our house and search for roadkill and birds that had been knocked to the side of the road or maybe a dead rabbit and we would note these down and we would also develop theories as to who might have been responsible for the deaths. And we had one exciting club day where we buried a dead rabbit that we found. And then the following week, the club day was digging up the dead rabbit again to see what it might look like after a week underground. So that was how we entertained ourselves back in those days. I'm going to read an extract from the title story in my collection, Dinosaurs on Other Planets. I'm going to read an extract from the middle of the story. We're joining the characters when Kate and Coleman, who are a couple in middle age, are at home and have just been surprised by a visit from their adult daughter, Emer, who has returned from London, bringing their only grandchild, Oshin, with her. And it's only when the car pulls up outside the house that we discover Emer has also brought somebody else with her, a new man, considerably older than her, called Pavel, who her parents haven't ever met before. So we're joining them now when Coleman and his grandson have gone for a walk in a nearby forest. Emer and Pavel have gone to the pub and Kate is at home in the kitchen waiting for the others to return. An hour later, her husband and grandson returned, clattering into the kitchen. Oshin's shoes and the hems of his trousers were covered in mud. He was carrying something, cradling it to his chest. And when she went to help him off with his shoes, she saw that it was an animal skull. 
Coleman went out to the utility room and rummaged around in the cupboards, knocking over pans and brushes, banging doors. What are you looking for? she said. The boy remained in the kitchen, stroking the skull as if it were a kitten. It was yellowy-white and long-nosed, with a broad forehead. Coleman returned with a plastic bucket and a five-gallon drum of bleach. He took the skull from the boy and placed it in the bucket, poured the bleach on top until it reached the rim. Now, he said, that'll clean up nicely. Leave it a couple of days and you'll see how white it is. Look, Oshin said, grabbing Kate's hand and dragging her over. We found a dinosaur skull. A sheep, more likely, his grandfather said. A sheep that got caught in wire. The dinosaurs were killed by a meteorite millions of years ago. Kate peered into the bucket. Little black things, flies or maggots, had already detached themselves from the skull and were floating loose. There was green around the eye sockets and veins of mud grained deep in the bone. What's a meteorite? the boy asked. The front door opened and they heard Emer and Pavel coming down the hall. The child doesn't know what a meteorite is, Coleman said when they entered the kitchen. Emer rolled her eyes at her mother. She sniffed and wrinkled her nose. It smells like a hospital in here, she said. Pavel dropped to his haunches beside the bucket. What's this, he said. It's a dinosaur skull, Oshin said. So it is, Pavel said. Kate waited for her husband to contradict him, but Coleman had settled into an armchair in the corner holding a newspaper chest height in front of him. She looked down at the top of Pavel's head, noticed how his hair had the faintest suggestion of a curl, how a tuft went its own way at the back. The scent of his shampoo was sharp and sweet and spiced, like an orange pomander. She looked away, out to the garden, and saw that the afternoon was fading. I'm going to get some herbs, she said, before it's too dark. And taking scissors and a basket, she went outside. She cut parsley first, then thyme. Inside the house, someone switched on the lights. She watched figures move about the kitchen, a series of family tableau framed by the floral curtained windows. Now Coleman and Oshin, now Oshin and Emer, sometimes Emer and Pavel. Every so often, she heard a burst of laughter. Back inside, she found Coleman, Oshin and Pavel gathered around a box on the table an old cardboard potato box from beneath the stairs. Overhead, water rattled through the house's antiquated pipes, the sound of Emer running a bath. From the box, Coleman took some dusty school reports, a metal truck with its front wheels missing, a tin of toy soldiers. Aha, he said, I knew we kept it. He lifted out a long cylinder of paper and tapped it playfully against the top of Oshin's head. I'm going to show you what a meteorite looks like, he said.
Kate watched as Coleman unfurled the paper and laid it flat on the table. It curled back into itself and he reached for a couple of books from a nearby shelf, positioning them at top and bottom to hold it in place. It was a poster four feet long and two feet wide. This here, Coleman said, is the asteroid belt. He traced a circular pattern in the middle of the poster and when he took away his hands, his fingertips were grey with dust. Pavel moved aside to allow Kate a better view. She peered over her husband's shoulder into a dazzling galaxy of stars and moons and dust. It was dizzying, the unimaginable expanses of space and time, the vast spinning universe. We are there, she thought, if only we could see ourselves. We are there, and so is John in Japan. The poster was wrinkled and torn at the edges, but otherwise intact. She looked at the planets, pictured them spinning and turning for all those years beneath the stairs, their moons in quiet orbit. This is our man, Coleman said, pointing to the top left-hand corner. This is the fella that did for the dinosaurs. The boy on tiptoe touched a finger to the thing Coleman had indicated, a flaming ball of rock trailing dust and comets. Did it only hit planet Earth? Yes, his grandfather said. Wasn't that enough? So there could still be dinosaurs on other planets? No, Coleman said. At exactly the same time that Pavel said, very likely. The boy turned to Pavel. Really? I don't see why not, Pavel said. There are millions of other galaxies and billions of other planets. I bet there's lots of other dinosaurs. Maybe lots of other people too. Like aliens, the boy said. Yes, aliens, if you want to call them that, Pavel said. Although they might be very like us. Coleman lifted the books from the edges of the poster and it rolled back into itself with a slap of dust. He handed it to Oshin, then returned the rest of the things to the box, closed the cardboard flaps. Okay, Sonny, he said, let's put this back under the stairs. And the boy followed him out of the kitchen, the poster tucked under his arm like a musket. After dinner that evening, Kate refused all offers of help. She sent everyone to the sitting room to play cards while she took the dishes to the sink. Three red lights shone down from the wind turbines on the mountain, a warning to aircraft. She filled the sink with soapy water and watched the bubbles form psychedelic honeycombs, millions and millions of tiny domes glittering on the dirty plates. Neil Hagerty reads from his novel, The Jewel. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the April edition of Fiction at the Friary, which, as I think you've probably gathered, is not coming from Cork this month, but from my kitchen table in Dublin. Um, these are strange times. And I'm grateful, too, to Danielle 
and to Madeline for inviting me and for making today possible. And thank you everybody for coming. Thanks for forming a sort of virtual community today. Uh, I think it's great. So, The Duel. Um, it's my second novel after Inch Levels. It was published by Head of Zeus in October of last year and the paperback came out last week, just last week, so that was exciting and it's, lo it's lovely to see it. The Duel tells a story of a painting, a Victorian painting, and the main body of the book uh, is about three characters, their lives, their destinies in more or less the here and now, and how their lives and their destinies intersect with this painting, the eponymous painting, The Duel. The painting was created by a fictional artist named Emily Sanborn, and I thought in the past I've read sections from the contemporary part of the book, but I thought today I would mix it up a little and I would go back to the origins, the beginning of the book, the, the beginnings of the painting, so we could see where everything begins. So I'm going to read from the prologue and we're in London and it's 1839. The cloth was of linen. That choice had always been clear. And not white, but rather the colour of cream, of buttermilk, of good Scotch porridge. Not white. She flinched from the very thought of the dishonesty, the harshness of white. White was bridal, virginal, clean, unsullied, and she was none of those things. White would not do for the task she had in mind. The linen set out for inspection was tabby woven. So they told her, there at the counter of dark mahogany and shining glass that ran impressively the length of the shop. Bolts of cloth lined the wall in every colour, fabric, texture. It was not a term she had previously heard of or understood. Tabby woven, madam, the assistant said, and his companion, his superior, evidently, nodded approvingly to the right. As strong as linen can be, madam. Irish linen, the other interjected. The best, madam. Look at the quality, he said. And he ran a clean, proud hand over the cloth that was both rough and smooth at the same time. Tabby woven. And she thought of a cat purring and stretching in luxury. It was a pleasant term, though. Of course, the words hardly mattered. The fabric was a thing, and it would serve admirably. This was a day for adventure, beginning with the railway journey down from Watford. What an adventure, with the din and the steam of the train, and then Euston with its vast roofs and its great arch. Best to consider the adventure and the glamour of it all, and to ignore the smoke and the coal dust the cool smuts filling the air, the dirt clinging to the nostrils and showing up horrifyingly on her handkerchief. Quite enough for one day, without London then to negotiate, the carriages raising a din of hooves and an explosion of dust with every passing, 
an odour of dirt and smoke and tobacco and horse or lure to be avoided on Kingsway as she pressed through the crowds, lifting her skirts just a polite little, feeling the sickness but holding it at bay. Oppressing London heat, preserve me from this dirt and this place. But she had a task, so she understood, waking in bed, feeling her illness anew, examining her skin for fresh sores and redness. Then in the train, then pushing through the crowds on the hot pavement, uh, something to accomplish and much to hold at bay, and then directly home. It will serve, she said now. It will serve, yes, very nicely indeed. And both of their faces lifted at this effort of sprightliness on her part. She saw with a pang that they too were tired for all of their pride in this porridge-coloured piece of linen, these bolts of cloth from across the empire and across the world, the shining glass and glossy dark wood and their handsome shop. Excellent, madam. It will last you a lifetime. A tablecloth, he added, and he raised an interested eyebrow. No, indeed. And then, to fend off further questions, I need 80 inches by 60 inches on hand, she added, and then relented and essayed some humour. Not quite a tablecloth, gentlemen. An on hand tablecloth would be a very awkward tablecloth, she said. And now she took a step back in her mind and watched them rethink and recalibrate. Still well-dressed, of course, still a lady, but an eccentric, probably, one of the swarms of eccentric ladies that people today's London. One reads about them in Blackwell's. Perhaps this young lady's plan is to fashion an eccentric something by her own hand, a shawl or a wrap, and parade the item as eccentric females like to do. And ought eccentric females be permitted to roam London all alone? Where is her husband? Does he know she is on the loose? Well, so be it. It was still good Irish linen, a pretty penny. They could still be pleased with the sale. Indeed, the first man said. No, I'm going to paint on it, she heard herself say. A polite pause and then, indeed, madam. She nodded and now, for the first time today, the deed virtually done, the purchase virtually complete, the journey worth it, after all. She felt a small pulse of pleasure and anticipation. Yes, she said, I'm going to paint on it. It will be my best piece. The men smiled, nodded. They had nothing else to say. It will be my best piece. The linen was stretched on a frame now, and it was sized, the glue heated and applied rapidly. It was ready. The water and the pigments were ready also, and set out in their neat little dishes. Cinnabar and lead white, azurite, ultramarine, verdigris and smalt, and beautiful, profound malachite. She would prepare the distemper batch by batch. The colours would blaze if she had anything to do with it and leap from the cloth and live and breathe. They would never be seen. But this was the very least of her worries. This was her very intention. Later, much later, days later, 
for the plan to begin and conclude this painting in less than no time, to execute it on a, in a flash with one eye on the sands of her life running rapidly. This plan came to nothing. It had to be done correctly. It had to be done with love and pride, how foolish she had been even to think of dashing this piece off in a trice. She could step back and see this blazing and leaping for herself. The tiny sparks of brilliant white and the cinnabar and the verdigris. Yes, they were intense. They blazed as though alive. The malachite at the centre of all breathed and inhaled and exhaled with life. The distemper, colour by colour, had soaked through the canvas as she had intended it should. The fabric now was heavy and sodden, but it would dry and would it be rolled away and she would leave her instructions to the letter and they would be carried out when the time came. When the time came, there was little time left. She looked again. Yes, the smooth, dark horse haunch, the jewel embedded in the gleaming pauldron, blazing out as she had wanted it to, the malachite shining as though lit from within. There it was, placed at the very centre of the piece, and the light welled from it. It was a living thing. It would live forever. It would live when she was dead. It would shine and swell in the darkness. She thought again about the men, the kindly confused men who had sold her the linen. What would they have said? And she reframed the conversation in her head. Not a tablecloth, on no account. I mean to paint on it in distemper. A thin brush, gentlemen, is best with this medium. Many, many layers quickly applied. The distemper will soak and saturate and then it will dry and be complete. I mean the colours to sing. Malachite and cinnabar and indigo and azurite, the most beautiful words, the most beautiful colours, my means. Reasonably ample, gentlemen, I assure you, as ample as I need them to be, can command. Distemper, gentlemen, it fades very rapidly indeed. We have few such pieces alive in the world, but I mean this piece to live forever, as I will not. No, I will not. No, you see, I mean to have this piece placed upon me as a coverlet when I am in my coffin, placed carefully and carefully tucked and smoothed. A shroud, by no means, gentlemen, I would not care to be wrapped in such a biblical way. How primitive that would be and how confining. No, I mean a rug, a covering, a coverlet to keep me warm and keep me cool for all eternity. A coverlet and a painting that will live forever through the ages in the darkness. And yes, indeed, it has a name, a good name. You will approve, gentlemen, I am certain. Would you like to hear it? Very well then, I shall tell you the name. I shall call it the Jewel. My name is Neve Bagnall and this is from a story called Are Fish Ever Happy? which I started reading here um, the last time at Fiction at the Friary. So just 
a quick recap. Um, it's about an older and a younger man who meet when they're both um, about to attempt suicide, and it was supposed to be a lovely kind of story of friendship where the two of them go home and make friends, but things are starting to curdle a little bit, and uh, I'll just take the story from there. He comes home one morning in the early hours and goes straight for a shower. The pipework wakes me. The house is freezing. I worry he will catch a chill. Sure enough, the next day he seems miserable, tired out, on edge. I stretch my memory and go shopping to get some ingredients for my nan's cure-all chicken soup, or something similar at least. I meet Mrs. Bitts and her grandson as I return with the messages. The child is six and not at all shy. He asks me if I know our fish ever happy. I say I think so sometimes, maybe when they're being fed. He says to me then, why do they always look like this? Pressing his hands to his cheeks and making bobbing lips. He's staying for a sleepover. I'm glad for her. She'd fallen out with the sun a while back, so this means a lot. The chicken soup my guest eats without gratitude, almost making me vow to live longer just to teach him some manners. Then we settle in for the nine o'clock news. This is the first time he's bothered to watch it with me. I wonder, is this perhaps a sign of a change coming? A flicker of interest in the outside world once more. Maybe this is the start of recovery. Third story in, a girl has been attacked viciously. He freezes in rapt attention until the moment they show an artist's sketch. She'd gotten a good look. His big eyes, so wide and innocent in our early weeks, are twisted on the screen to cruel slits. The hair is well captured. All the wildly abandoned curls tucked thickly into the woolly hat that I've just realised he hasn't been wearing at all today. The strong jawline, the cleft, there could be no mistake. He stands, an ugly energy about him. This is a setup. That's her brothers. They've beaten me. They've beaten up this other young one just to frame me. I nod. His breath is fast, belying the thought, the quick explanation. I nod, wanting to believe him. He couldn't possibly have done something like this. He shatters any illusions by turning off the telly abruptly and going to the wall that divides us from Mrs. Bits. We can hear the newsreader giving out phone numbers for anyone with any information, and then suddenly the sound is silenced. She might be out making a cup of tea, I tell him. She'd check with me first anyway. Sure, you're my nephew as far as she's concerned. I stand up, pathetically placing myself in his way. Sure, she's probably up reading to her grandson. Maybe the telly's on a timer. I know as I say this how unlikely it sounds. I think you look tired, he tells me, with no care in his voice, looking down at me with cold determination. How about an early night? I reluctantly step up the stairs and listen to him, seeking something from the kitchen drawers. Then going back to the hall, there's a rip of wires from the wall. In my bedroom, I work in darkness, getting myself together, knowing this is a one chance, one shot kind of thing. I open my window quietly, holding the end of the washing line in, another, in one hand. As he exits the front door, he makes a cautious left turn, looking up and down the street, not thinking of checking above him, for me, watching. I know he's in a hurry to deal with her, quietly but with maximum subtlety, and has decided he can deal with me later. He moves slowly. The cheap kettle weight isn't that heavy, but it seems to find the target well enough. The hatless head goes down with a bang. He doesn't move. 
I start shouting and roaring, throwing more things out the window, anything to draw attention. I suddenly run out of breath, of energy, of everything. And I know this is probably the end of it all right here. Something in my chest has loosed and the air in the room feels smoother somehow, more breathable than it was before. In my hand is the other end of the washing line, a connection to whatever is lying on the path outside. I lie down on the bare bed, exhausted, holding it taut, so I'll feel it if it moves. But for now, I think I can relax. I'm John Lee, and my story is called Modern Love, and the, the letter O's are uh, omitted and replaced with uh, an underscore, uh, as if in a game of hangman. We are Una's treasure, her doubloons and pieces of eight. She likes to count us, 22 now. Una's sadness is dull sometimes. Uh, and then it's sharp. Ah, but we are, ooh. We are the anticipation of pleasure, pleasure itself, its aftermath. We want to help her, but there's nothing we can do. We're telling the story backwards. We like happy endings. The door of the wardrobe opens and the light comes in. It's Una. She's crying. Hello, Una. We haven't seen Dano for a long time. Una's carrying something large. It's big red and he's stained with blood. Ooh. She's trying to push him in. The wardrobe is very big, but so is big red. The rest of us shift about as she wrenches him around. She's crying harder now. Then he's in and the door closes again. Big Red won't answer our questions at first, like he's too traumatized. We stop asking and 10 seconds later, he comes out with it. Red letters against the sky, the first missing, Para House. Big Red is in a transparent plastic sack, leaning against an office wall in the opera house. Thank you for seeing me, Una is saying to the manager. It's a strange thing I'm asking. Take your time, the manager says, and gets her to sit down. She tells him about her and Dano. She starts to explain about Dano's collection, but the manager cuts in. Wasn't the whole town talking about it, wondering who it could be? He was quite the boy, your Danny. He looks confused for a second. I'm sorry for your trouble. In the end, he lets her take Big Red. They've ordered a new sign for the roof and a review of health and safety. He gives her a hug as she leaves. I stayed with him to the end, Big Red tells us. He wants to make it about himself. Big Red couldn't have moved if he'd wanted to. Spontaneous rolling is just a story we tell the smaller, lower cases. And isn't Dano holding him tightly across Dano's chest and over Dano's head? Like a halo, says Big Red. Dano is lying on his back on the footpath outside the opera house. It's three days before Big Red will join us. 4.30 in the morning. Dano's bleeding from the head and he's moaning. No one comes. Now he's not moaning anymore. It starts to rain a little. 
At last someone comes around the corner. Oh God. Earlier that night, Dano and Una are fighting. We wish we couldn't hear, but the wardrobe is in the bedroom. You're going to get caught, she says. If you don't stop, you'll get caught. Dano laughs. They'll never catch me. I'm the liberator. Dano fucking Connell. Hawaii fucking 5-0. There's a picture of him on the wall. We can see it when he opens the wardrobe and someone new joins us. Dano's always talking about that picture. It's from the free newspaper and Una got it blown up for him. He's smiling up at the security camera. We can't see his mouth under the scarf that covers his face. We can tell from his eyes. They go quiet for a while. Then Dano says something we can't hear and laughs. Una is laughing too. Okay, fuck it. It's time to quit, says Dano. Just one more. Signs with missing letters. World of Spurt. Toy Town. New look. There's no blue ones, says Una one day, looking into the wardrobe. No, says Dano. I don't like the blue ones. They're not fruit pastilles, you know. Thank you, Una. There's just four of us, the first floor. Una is lying on the bed, looking up at Dano. She doesn't have any clothes on. He says, one for your left tit. Cold, she says, go easy. And one for the right. Of course, we like it when they're happy, when we make them happy. But we can't feel it like them. This is for your cock. She hoops one of us over him, and he lays another down where he wants to put his cock. Oh. Ooh, oof. And maybe we enjoyed a little too, for a while, just to be a shape. Dano folds his ladder and picks up his box of tools. It's still dark, but across the river, the sky is brightening above the convent. He walks us back to the van, whistling to himself. The sign with letters missing says, Suth Kunti Foods. We think we're going to like him. My name is Lord Mackey, and I'm reading an extract from my story, The Cannon in the Daffodils. Red Morin, you're the talk of the place, my mother says, pounding the big fork into the turnips, knuckles taut and brown eyes blazing. Ma'am is religion mad, day and night in the church, changing the flowers, polishing the brass, starching the altar cloths. She pleads and prays, but Dad won't budge. He carries on reading his treasured old copy of the Bell magazine and smiles. Was anyone ever so crucified, Mam says. I may as well be forking water from that river yonder as trying to save your soul, Red Moran. Dad winks at me and stays home Sundays. The other men go to Mass, their Sunday brogues clattering the gravel road like hailstones stammering off our galvanised shed. To shorten the road, they talk. First they talk small, the rain, the hurling, road bowling. Then they talk big, Le Mass, the Congo, Khrushchev. At the church, the women go to the left aisle, the men to the right, and the cafflers hang around the door, eyeing the girls, nudging one another and smirking. My brother is warned to stay well away from the cafflers. The canon, or Father O'Brien, says Mass. Father O'Brien is tall, with a high, tinny voice, and steel wool eyebrows. His billy goat beard gives him the look of the villain in my brother's, our boys. He was in the war, 
and has a steel plate in his skull. He cannot abide noise. Once when Miss Daly taught us the Queen of the May to sing on May Sunday, he stood on the altar, raised his hands to the gallery and tinnied, come now stop it. Miss Daly pinked to the roots of her new wavy perm and never again brought us to sing at mass. He's no joke in confession either, Connie next door says. He'll shake sins out of you much as a dog shakes life out of a rat. <laughs> then he load up the penance. You're better off going to the cannon. Father O'Brien has no time for the cannon, probably because the cannon is a martyr for the drink. <laughs> you couldn't draw a drink to that family, Connie says. Tis in the blood. His father drank out two farms of arable land before he was 50, and that was some supping. I wonder how anyone could pour two farms down his gullet. The cannon is a small round slob with a purple face and red spider legs crawling on his cheeks. He calls you by your name and not child as Father O'Brien does. Dad, I say, why don't you go to Mass? He is slow to answer, but I tweeze it out of him. Well, it's to do with your Uncle Paddy, he says. I have an Uncle Paddy, I say, astonished. Lost his life in Spain, he did, fighting Franco's fascists. His voice quivers and he stops. I catch his hand, rough as toast, and squeeze it. What's it got to do with your not going to Mass? Well, he continues, when the bishop blocked Mass for Paddy's 25th anniversary below in the church, declaring that he'd have no red communists prayed for in his diocese, I decided if they didn't want Paddy, they could do without me. What are fascists, Dad, I ask? He tells me about Hitler, how he wanted to get rid of the Jews and anyone else he didn't like the look of. How he wanted only fair-haired, blue-eyed babies. Then he's explaining about communism, how everyone should get a, a, how everyone should get a fair crack of the whip, from the bishop to the beggar. Only under communism, there'd be no call for begging, when ma'am interrupts. Bad enough that you're a red pagan yourself, Red Moran, she yells. Don't dare fill the child's head with it. I get the fluttering inside, the bird in my belly, like when I heard them in the shed. You could just go and stand at the back, Mam was saying. Sure, what difference would it make? A big difference to me, Dad said. With you, it's all about the priest and the neighbours. Then Mam was shouting, a good Christian father wouldn't be giving such bad example, Father O'Brien says, the shed door banged and Dad marched down the path. Next morning he was on the settle bed in his underclothes. He sat with us for breakfast, but Mam didn't sugar his tea or butter his bread. In school, I'm tracing the course of the River Lee on the greaseproof paper Mam wraps our lunches in. Master Campion leans over my shoulder, his tobacco smell coating my nose like a dry fog. He points with yellow fingers at where the Sheehy Mountains should be. I draw upside down V's for the mountains and write Gugambari beside them. Then I say to him, my dad doesn't go to mass. Is he an atheist? No, he's a communist. Is that worse? The master hasn't time to answer. Minnie Crimmon has her hand up. Minnie is the runt of the Crimmon family. The rest are sharp as kissings. <laughs> Poor Minnie was behind the door when God shared out the brains, her mother says. She can never remember which number to bring down in long division. 
I decide to ask the canon catechism Friday. However, it's Father O'Brien who arrives. The canon is not himself today, he sneers, hanging his black coat on the back of the master's chair. Father His eyes skim the room and like chisels cut into me. Explain sarcilage, he says, his icy gaze holding mine. An offence against the holy person placed, I think, Father, I answer. Yes, indeed, irreverence to a holy person, he said, and I know he is remembering the day in Bridie Noonan's shop when he cornered Dad. My relationship with God is my own business, Dad said, edging past him and shoving me out the door. The cardinal sins, he points again at me, and I sail through. Then, like a big stinging wasps, he drones on about impure thoughts, and when he says any questions, I blurt out. Do communists go to heaven? A white frost settles on Father O'Brien's face. Communists, he says, are followers of that stick are followers of that Satan, Stalin. They terrorise priests and burn churches. Communists go straight to hell. I swallow hard to stop the tears. That soul will burn for all eternity. <laughs> Fiction at the Friary and on campus was presented by Madeleine Darcy and Danielle McLaughlin. Location introductions by J.P. Quinn. Produced by Kieran Hurley for UCC 98.3 FM. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. <laughs>